0: Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Conventional Sniper Podcast. I'm your spotter, Justin Coletti. Before we uh, get into this podcast, I want to apologize to everyone. And uh, I know it's been a long time since I've done a podcast. I'd actually recorded a podcast uh, a couple of days ago around Veterans Day. And uh, like an idiot, I accidentally deleted it on my computer because I'm trying to switch over to using like a full system with a microphone instead of using my iPad, which I normally use to record the podcast. Benefits using the, the iPad is I can travel wherever, plug into whatever, and I can do it on the fly. Maybe sit in my vehicle and do it. Benefits of using it on the computer is that I can get better mic technology and uh, instead of using my iPhone headset. So technology, man, sometimes it's, uh, it's hard to choose. So anyway, I digress. Let's go ahead and knock out the S2 brief. So I want to give a quick shout-out uh, to Gray Fox Industries. They make this sweet uh, memorial... Triangular folded uh, Velcro patch, and they're a few bucks. They seem like really good guys over there, and I bought a few, and I I kind of been handing them out here and there. And uh, they get this little red bar at the bottom, and uh, you can you know write someone's name down there that you want to remember. You know Velcro it onto your onto the roof and inside your vehicle, or you can put it on uh, you know anything that will take any sort of Velcro. So I just want to say thank you to those guys and their support. uh, You know sending out. Some patches to me and and, and including extra in my orders because I really like them I've been handing them out everywhere so Um, also I think I've mentioned it before but the uh, international sniper competition that's normally held in Fort Benning it's usually up until this year every year it'd been in October Uh, talking with the guys down at the schoolhouse there it's been moved to April so um, I will be down at the international sniper competition this year and either helping volunteers set up the range or, you know, getting some interviews for some guys down there. we some talks with some really good stuff with some of the cadre down there. So, <clears throat> excuse me, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll be down there. I'll probably be down there for the whole week. So, just an FYI in April. But, uh, yeah, so if you're down there, make sure, make sure you come find me and, uh, you know, say hi. So, uh, I don't also, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the news lately. A couple of weeks ago. The cartel, uh, and I don't, I don't want to put these guys' names out there because the cartel is not a uh, it's not an organization which deserves any credit by any means. However, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at the reality of the situation here. So a couple of weeks ago, one of the uh, high-level cartel members, his son had gotten uh, rolled up by the police. Police go conduct a raid. They roll up this individual that... Uh, is obviously not a good guy by any means. I mean, you're in the cartel. So they get rolled up, and in turn, the cartel sends out, uh, I guess you want to say their their irregular militia, we'll call them, uh, guys that <clears throat> have equipment, they've got vehicles, and they proceed to get in some firefights and cause a lot of damage and kill innocent people uh, and police officers and law enforcement um, getting this individual back. And in no way... At all, is this acceptable by any means? And this is happening right across our border. Uh, And I don't mean to get into the politics and and into the weeds of this situation, but in 2017 alone, that was the deadliest year for murders in Mexico. It was over 31,000 people killed. Think of that, 31,000. That's a lot of people. That's more people killed in 2017 in Mexico than in Syria. And Syria is supposed to be one of the most deadliest places on the planet right now. I would, I would definitely not agree with that. I would say that, that Mexico is turning out to be one of those places. And this is right down the street from us. The cartel literally have a grasp, uh, and I would even say they have freedom of movement everywhere from Mexico all the way up as far as way here in New Hampshire. And the 95 Corridor is a hotbed for cartel movement, um, especially here in New Hampshire. So... Um, Just in 2019 alone, also, the cartel is on Uh, track—I shouldn't say the cartel, I should say murders. Murders, and I'm sure most of these are from the cartel. In 2019 alone thus far, and we only have a few months left, they are on track to beat that 31,000 murders from 2017. That is just absolutely insane that it's happening right across the border. And I know Border Patrol, I know local ci- uh, citizens in the United States, they're having quite an issue down there with this, and I'm not saying what I'm for or against, but, but something's got to be done to stem some of this flow, stem some of this absolute craziness, uh, and it's only a matter of time, in my opinion, before it kind of gets out of the control to the point that it's on our side of the border, uh, and it's just lost uh, you know, any chance of being contained. So... Um, it, you know, and I don't want to post any videos or again say any names, but uh, the video that I did see about this cartel member's son being released uh, when the te- when when Mexican cartels did get engaged uh, or in the firefight with local law enforcement, they were using uh, lightly armored vehicles with M2 50 caliber machine guns, and uh, there was one individual who dismounted with a Barrett 50 cal sniper rifle and engaged law enforcement, and was, at, uh, engaged law enforcement and was actually killing people. And, and talking to people behind the scenes and kind of listening to some other podcasts and some credible sources, this is a daily occurrence. 50 cals and having technicals, uh, and we'll get into in a later podcast, I think I'm going to do the history of the technical and the Toyota war, which is still an interesting concept, and most people don't know, uh, A, what a technical is, where it really came to fame, and kind of uh, where it caught on. But we'll get into that uh, topic later. But again, having cartel members have this type of armament, if we were to go into conventional uh, action or have boots on the ground in Mexico or even just putting a stand-up at the border, this could get very dangerous very quickly. So you know, if there's any politicians that listen to this, I just want to urge you to really think about the consequences of this situation and, and how to stem it. And to be honest with you, and this is why I'm glad I'm not a politician, I, it would be really hard to stem it uh, from my seat, depending on where I was, because it's not, it's, it's going to be met with violence either way. And sometimes, you know, in my opinion, you have to fight fire with fire. So anyway, moving on from that, uh, well, I, I guess not really, let me back up. So there is something that I do want to bring up. Uh, there are three levels of marksmen that are included in this type of, of mindset, but there's the... Irregular, there's the train marksman, and then there's the sniper. So for an irregular, they understand the basics of how to apply their weapon system in a situation. Uh, They'll usually use accuracy by volume, so uh, taking pop shots numerous times. They stay in one location. They're usually in conjunction with some sort of larger force, usually a platoon-sized element, so around 30 people. They're not standalone they're usually not kinetic, but their rifle is the basic issued rifle, we'll say for a military, like an AK-47. A lot of times we're in Afghanistan, a lot of sol- American soldiers will get confused between an irregular or just a farmer who has a good tactical position and is engaging slowly, not full auto or, or rapid engagements, but more of a well-placed shot. That's more of an irregular, someone who just understands how to apply the basics of shooting, and shoots a little bit more slowly and takes the time to line up their shots. Usually they have iron sights, they may have a red dot or a basic optic, and they may not understand how to make those measurements or or how to effectively conduct themselves into that weapon system that will guarantee more successful hits faster and sooner than say someone with a machine gun who's just using literally accuracy by volume and just splattering the area then you have a trained marksman the, the trained marksman is usually at least in the american context is the better marksman of the irregulars that begins to get a little bit of training on how to use optics so they have a more accurized gun system uh maybe a little bit little, little better ammo. An example of this would be uh, the Mark 12 or the SPR concept in the early days of Iraq. Um, And that concept was really the first time a specialized precision platform had been really instituted into the conventional level for the AR-15 M4 platform. Yes, there have been the M16s, and yes, there have been the precision guys uh, in, say, the Army Marksmanship Unit who had really tricked out their M16s or their M4s. And just prior to that, that SPR, special purpose rifle concept, the only thing that was really done was a sniper rifle scope was tossed onto an M16. And that was kind of it. You're using whatever ammunition you could scrounge up. The barrels weren't free floated. You just kind of got what you got. And you were just lucky to have a weapon system that you could see more with. So the marksman is usually, uh, will work at engagements for longer ranges, but will not work separate of a platoon size element they work in conjunction with them they're usually at the squad level where there's usually one or two per platoon or one per squad or two per squads so they're just a little bit they just have a little bit more training maybe a little bit special ammunition maybe some better optics uh, they don't usually go to a school although the american military does have a marksmanship school Uh, Then there's the sniper. The sniper is specifically trained, specifically selected. They're given specific equipment. They work in smaller teams. And probably the kind of the three biggest things that really set the sniper apart from that trained marksman is they understand camouflage and concealment. They also have honed their marksmanship fundamentals and they understand the shot process, the shot analysis. And they're also a huge reconnaissance asset, which we've talked about in other podcasts. So... Those are the three differences, and I would say the cartel members are more along the lines of irregulars. Most of those guys are paid poorly or thrust into that position where if they don't do what the cartel says, they or their families are murdered and disappear. So I would say they're closer to irregulars. Maybe some of the higher level guys maybe get a little bit closer to the marksman side, but I wouldn't say much. And it's that's a good thing. We don't want them to get that type of training uh, because that only just creates more of an issue for us. So, all right, moving on from that, uh, with, uh, you know, everything kind of going on, uh, with winter coming up and hunting season going on. I just want to point out some of you know the safety involved with hunting and some of the risks you take. Uh, obviously with, uh, temperatures dropping, you want to make sure you have the appropriate clothing. Uh, a lot of times guys go and sit in their deer stands and Next thing you know, they've got an issue. They're getting into hyperthermia or they need help. Uh, The number one related uh, hunter fatality issue is the weapon discharging, primarily when the hunter is climbing down from their tree stand or climbing into their tree stand. Some safety precautions that you should be taking is you should not load your rifle until you are seated in your deer stand and you are ready to begin scanning your sector of fire And you know what your target should look like and where it may be. You should know what's beyond your target should you miss. And let's be honest, everyone's going to say that they never miss a deer, but I don't know, I've seen some guys miss deers before. So make sure you're taking this into consideration. Your rifle has a safety. Use that safety in the deer stand until you're ready to actively engage your deer or whatever it is that you may be hunting in a moose or whatever. So the other thing too is when you are done, and you're done for the day, and it's time to come out of that deer stand, make sure you clear your rifle, sling your rifle, and then climb down the tree using your hands. Just don't carry the rifle in one hand and only use one hand to get out of the deer stand. That's how people get hurt. So with that being said, in the military we have this thing called a GATWA. And it's an acronym for how you conduct a report and give someone information about what you're doing. So in this can be applied to the hunting world, and you can use it without the A at the end. So you can call it a GO TW, right? Or a GATW without the A. And what it stands for is a G stands for where are you going. You need to let someone know where you're going. If you're going, you know, two hours away to your favorite hunting spot, you need to let someone know where that is. You need to give them maybe a strip map or directions where you plan to park your vehicle and how far you plan to walk in from where your vehicle is. You need to let them know because God forbid something happens to you and someone tries to call and they don't know where you went. Also, if you're going by yourself, you need to let them know that it's just you. If you're taking someone else with you, you need to let someone else know, a third person, who else you're taking with you. You need to let them know your name, maybe give them an alternate contact number or cell phone, which is also vitally important because some of these hunting spots may not have cell phone service. And, you know, with that being said, you need to let someone know, and this is the T part. So we've got G for where you're going, O for where or excuse me, O for others you're taking with you, or if you're going by yourself, and T for time. Time you expect to return back to your vehicle or back into the cell phone service area or when you expect to be back at the house. Let's say you expect to be in the deer stand by 5 a.m., and you expect to be at the house by noon. You've returned back from hunting, successful or unsuccessful. You're going to be back by noon. And then the last thing is the W. is what You need to tell that person that you've told where you're going, others you're taking with you, and what time you expect to be back, what to do in case you don't return at the projected time. So let's say you say, I'm going to be back by noon. And you say to them, all right, if I'm not... My primary time is noon, and if I'm not back by 1 o'clock, you need to try to call my phone. And if you can't get a hold of me, you send a text message by, you know, one fifteen. If I don't respond back to you by 2 o'clock, you need to call the police and give them all the information of where I'm going. My cell phone number, who I took with me, the time I expected to be back. You need to coordinate all of that. Also, if you're going out there, you need to bring some medical equipment. Bring, bring a tourniquet bring a, a hypothermia blanket you can go and get the space blankets at any gas station or any Walmart I think they're like 10 bucks go get them bring them with you they can fit in a back pocket bring a backpack bring some food with you just in case you never know food for at least you know a half a day or a day bring a candy bar bring a power bar bring some water one thing that most people don't understand is that when you sit in a spot for a really long time and this is something that snipers are taught You sit in a spot in a long time, you're going to have some change blindness. Your eyes are naturally going to get tired of looking at something. Your eyes have muscles. And if you're looking down an optic the entire time or looking through binoculars at the same time, you need to be able to have the mental maturity to take your eyes off that glass and relax them. And food is super imperative to those muscles working and not being fatigued. So you need to take that into consideration. Also, before you should go out uh, hunting, you need to go zero your gun at the temperatures that are expected to be out there when you go hunting. If you look at the weather, and I think deer season starts here in New Hampshire like next week. So, I think it's next Wednesday or this Wednesday? Tomorrow? I don't know. Uh, You need to go zero your rifle. If it's going to be 32 degrees, you need to go as close as possible to 32 degrees and go zero your rifle. If you go and zero your if you zeroed your rifle in June and put it back in the safe, and then you go and shoot in December or November at a deer and it's twelve degrees outside, you're not gonna hit where you're aiming. It's just not gonna happen. The the powder burn rate that you fire uh, that, that the rate at which the powder burns when you fire your rifle is gonna be completely different. The atmospherics are going to be different. The temperature is going to be different. The humidity is going to be different. The atmospheric pressure, everything. All that's going to be completely different. So you need to go zero your rifle at the temperatures that you expect to be shooting your game with. Additionally, you should be using the same lot of ammunition. Every manufacturer makes a lot and tests that lot of ammunition. So if you are going to the store and you're buying surplus 1970s ammo, Say you're shooting 308, and you're buying 1970s ammo, and then you go and shoot and zero your rifle at that, and then you go pick up specialized Vmax deer ammunition, you're not going to have the same results. You shouldn't be hunting with ball ammunition anyway. You should be hunting with hunting ammo. Whether it be it, it most of the time, it's usually a higher grain than ball ammunition. Shooting a human being is a little bit. <laughs> the ammunition can be lighter grain weight wise, compared to shooting a a deer or a moose, you'll usually have a higher grain round. So you need to go test that ammunition, make sure it's the same lot number, go pick up, even if you just picked up two boxes of the same ammo, of hunting ammo, that will be fine. Five or 10 rounds to zero your rifle, make sure you understand the safety procedures of it, and then you can go and then take that ammunition and continue to shoot with it, and you'll be okay. Also with that, equipment-wise, a set of binoculars is important. Uh, Make sure you have a modern scope. Don't go to Walmart and buy a duplex reticle. And for those of you that don't know, a duplex reticle is literally just a solid crosshair all the way across. There's no measurement, uh, steady lines, or subtensions in that reticle. We are literally in the golden age of optics. You can go to primary arms, you can go to vortex, and you can get an extremely cheap scope with good turret adjustments and clicks, and a good reticle in there. Vortex has a lifetime warranty. Like, you get what you pay for fully, to the extent, to the max. So, I recommend you go and do that. Also, if you're shooting in a blind and not necessarily shooting in a deer stand, you should be using a tripod for a couple of reasons. The safety factor of having your gun on a tripod and secured and clamped into that tripod is much better than you laying that rifle on the ground or standing up in your deer stand, or excuse me, your deer blind, and then picking it up to shoot the deer when you finally see it. Having the gun in the tripod set up, you understand what your rifle is pointed at is much safer than just laying it down. Also, too, if that gun's set up there, all you should really have to do is flick the gun off a safe, and then you can shoot. So you can sit in your chair and wait. For the Moving on, so for the precision rifle shooters, I understand this is now dry fire season for you guys, and some of you may hunt on a regular basis outside of precision rifle, but for those of you, this is the off season, which really isn't the off season, it's more dry fire season, you should be coming up with a training schedule right now. You should be looking at how many dry fires you're doing a week or a day. You should be breaking it down, and you should be looking at Repetition, repetition, repetition. You should be setting yourself up to do a battle drill. A battle drill is a memory-based way of you recalling the repetition for a specific action. So if I know every time that I'm going to get down behind my rifle in the prone, it's going to be the same getting down behind my rifle in the prone every single time. And I'm going to do that day in and day out for months. So that it's second nature to me. That's what a battle drill is, is you're recalling that information in a second hand way, a second nature way. So with that being said, in repetition in mind, some of you have yet to pick up twenty two LR precision rifles. It will cost you fifty dollars for five hundred rounds of twenty two ammunition. To shoot five hundred rounds of ammo in a day from a twenty two, that's a long day of training. It would take you a couple of days to do that with a precision rifle, a center fire cartridge. Not to mention the cost differences are significant. $50 gets me 500 rounds versus 6.5 Creedmoor 140 grains. That's like $300. So I'm literally doubling the repetitions with my twenty-two compared to your 6.5 Creedmoor. Now let's say let's say I spend $100 and I have 1,000 rounds and I'm going to shoot 1,000 rounds a month. Of 22, And I'm going to do it from January to June, so six months we'll say. That's 6,000 repetitions of the same thing over and over and over again. I'm going to get up to the barricade the same way. I'm going to train my positional shooting the same way. Also, I'm going to test gear. New gear that I may want to shoot come the actual PRS season. I've put in 6,000 repetitions with that gear. I know what's going to work, what's not going to work. And I'm also going to do it extremely cheap. And as everyone complains in PRS, everyone seems to buy their gear and buy their way into competition. Well, here's a way to buy your way into the competition. If you're going to buy your way into competition, buy it through 22. Buy it through a precision rifle in 22. And do your 6,000 repetitions. That's how you buy your way into doing good in the competition. Also, that being said, with 22, let let's say my 6.5 Creedmoor to shoot a target at 1,000 meters or 1,000 yards, I need to... I think my data from back in the summer was 1,000 meters is 6 mils on my gun. Well, I know with my twenty-two, 200 meters is 6 mils in elevation on the gun. So I know that at 200 meters, that's my 1,000-meter equivalent, mathematically, in my, in my turrets, or I guess mechanically in my turrets. So now I can begin to break down and get the same data in my gun, and break down to scale the yardage from 0 yards to 200 yards. I can break down to scale, percentage-wise, to match my 6.5 Creedmoor gun. Now, is it going to be exactly like 6.5 Creedmoor? No, it's not. It's going to be slightly different, and 6.5 Creedmoor is primarily what I shoot. So, my twenty-two, though, the wind exposure is going to be significant. The learning curve for shooting in higher winds, because that bullet reacts more to lighter winds. So let's say every one and a half miles an hour begins to move my 22 LR, where compared to 6.5 Crevemore, it's every six mile an hour of wind. Well, obviously, the same type of slowed effect and wind effect on my 22 LR is going to be roughly the same at 200 as it is at 1,000. Maybe even more because it's such a lighter bullet. And now I've done that for 6,000 repetitions on variable windage. That's going to teach me a lot, and I'm going to have 6,000 more repetitions than you are. So, some of these ARs, or excuse me, not ARs, but some of these precision rifles that you can pick up, you can get the Voodoo Tactical. Voodoo Tactical has a ton of 22LR stuff. CZ, you can get a CZ 455. These are 22 trainers. Probably the 22 trainer that I have, and, and next weekend I'll be up at a buddy's house up in Maine, and I'll bring out the 22 and we'll probably post some pictures and get some different groups for ammunition size. Uh, meaning accuracy-wise, but the Ruger Precision Rifle Rimfire is probably my go- It is my go-to precision rifle right now. It is roughly about five hundred twenty-nine dollars, just looking at Ruger's website. But I've seen stuff go as low as three hundred fifty. So for three, let's say anywhere from we'll say four hundred twenty-five bucks. So for four hundred twenty-five dollars, I've bought my way into 6,000 rep- 6, <laughs> repetitions worth. Of practice compared to a guy who only maybe shoots 200 rounds a month also if i'm shooting 22 i don't have to go out to a range to find a 1200 yard range in the northeast those are kind of rare in the midwest you may have to drive an hour somewhere to go set up steel and go shoot it's just a pain in the ass where i can go to any local range anywhere and they'll probably have a 200 yard range i can go to an indoor range with 22 lr and practice the same fundamentals at 25 yards from a bench on timer. You can't necessarily do that with 6.5 because you're going to have, you know, the only thing you can do at that point with 6.5 is shoot groups, but you're not even shooting groups because most guys zero their 6.5 Creedmoor guns or their 308 guns at 100 yards. Most indoor ranges are 25 or 50 yards. It's very rare that you find a 100-yard range that's indoors. So with the Ruger Precision Rifle, it's got an 18-inch barrel. It has a free-float handguard. The barrel is a one-in-sixteen right-hand twist. Um, the cheek piece is adjustable. The stock is adjustable. Uh, everything on the gun is completely adjustable to your length of pull and your body type. Now, what I will say is, for the guys that are extremely tall, that are like Jack and the Giant Beanstalk, like my buddy Rob, and he's been on on the podcast before. Rob is six foot four. His length of pull is almost double mine is and he's got his precision rifle at home which is a semi-automatic and I was up there last weekend and I was trying to check his length of pull versus mine and his standard stock length I can't even reach the bottom of the pistol grip on his rifle that's how long his forearms are now if you're a guy that's six foot four and you have like scooper arms <coughs> t-rex arms now that, this gun is probably going to be a little difficult for you to shoot because it's a little bit smaller. It's only a 22, It's, but you can still work with it. It can still be done. Uh, I wouldn't sweat about it too much. So the gun weighs overall 6.8 pounds. If you have some higher-powered precision rifle 22 lr the gun's going to bounce a little bit. If you've got some underpowered stuff that is like sniper subsonic stuff, which uh, CCI does make um, a round that's called the sniper subsonic round, uh, and I'll post a picture of all this stuff uh, when we, when I put the stuff back up on Instagram and we get that going again. So you guys can see, um, you know, you can Google the rest of the stuff, Ruger Precision Voodoo Tactical CZ 455. You can Google that. But I'd recommend, like I said, to go with the Ruger Precision Rifle. So another thing with the Ruger is the, the poundage is adjustable from two and a quarter pounds to five pounds. And the trigger is clean. It's one of Ruger's nicer triggers. Probably the biggest, the two biggest things, well, three biggest things with this gun that are super important. One, the bolt throw. The bolt throw has this piece inside of it that if I, uh, I guess it's like a, a clamp spring. And it allows me to make it so that the bolt can adjust to three inches in travel to mimic a center fire cartridge. So I can shoot 22. And then be able to practice moving the bolt as if I'm shooting a centerfire or a 308 or something of 30 caliber in nature and length, length and width, which is super important. If you're looking to go and get into the precision rifle, picking up a 22, the Ruger precision, you feel comfortable using the 22, and now you want to go up to the larger caliber of the centerfire, you can then go pick up a Ruger precision rifle in 308 or 6.5 Creedmoor. Ruger has literally made the gun systems in two different calibers that's better than any other company that you can just go right up and the, the controls on the gun and the way you set yourself up on that gun are completely the same between both. And you've done it for 6,000 repetitions. You're already ahead of the game. It's it's not about what, what better, or more accurate rifle you can buy, although that does help. What it comes down to is the repetitions like we've been talking about. So... This is why this gun is perfect for you to get into it and continue to train. If you're also looking at some other stuff that may give you a little bit of better advantage, the Ruger does have a 30 MOA rail base built into it straight from the factory, so you don't have to go buy a different rail mount to mount your or a, a rail Picatinny mount to mount your optic onto it, and have to worry about what MOA base it is. Most people don't understand that when I mount an optic. Scope onto my rifle that that Picatinny rail piece has 20, 30, 40, I think 60 MOA. I think 60 MOA is the max of elevation gain to allow the scope to align perfectly or better with the bore for max elevation. Normally, if I've got if I'm doing an ELR, which is extreme long range, I have to top out the gun, meaning I have to dial. Into the retic- I have to dial the optic or or the uh, uh, scope up or down, and then hold into space and do like a Kentucky windage to be able to hit the target. If I add a different or higher MOA rail onto that gun, I don't have to dial as much and hold as much once I've maxed out my dialing. So having a 30 MOA rail means that at 200, I don't, or even further, and some guys shoot extreme long range with 22 out to 650 yards. I don't have to dial and hold. I can just dial and be good to go. It adds extra elevation into my optic by having a higher rail, higher higher MOA rail base into my 22. And then the last thing with the precision rifle is barrel changes are extremely easy. You can just I would recommend just taking it to a gunsmith primarily because they're going to check the gauges to make sure the headspace is correct on the barrel, but barrel changes are extremely easy and they're not complex. And most of it can be done with AR-15 wrenches. So if you want to not go and freeze your ass off in the winter, this is dry fire season. And like I said before, setting up your schedule is super important. You should be looking, again, at repetitions and checking your gear. And the other thing, too, is making... Most people don't think about this. They just toss their bolt gun back into the gun safe when they're done with the PRS season. You need to clean your gun. You need to strip some copper. Make sure your barrel life is good to go. Keep track of your rounds. It's super important. Most people don't keep track of how many rounds they shoot. Barrel life is extremely important. And with 6.5 Creedmoor, for example, it's a really high pressure round, and barrels will get worn out a lot faster than not. So, or not not faster than not, it'll get worn out faster than other, ra- other calibers such as 308. So please do yourself a favor, check that gun, make sure it's clean, make sure it's safe. Once a year, take it down to a gunsmith. Have a gunsmith check it out. Make sure that head spacing is still there. Make sure, you know, you can get other little things. Make sure the barrel's clean. Make sure the gun's clean. The action's clean. That's usually the first point when guns start having issues such as the safety doesn't work or we have uh, a negligent discharge or something of that nature is because the gun is not clean or because you're an idiot and you put the gun unsafe and still put your finger inside the trigger well. One of those two things. So, anyway, I guess it's all for tonight. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast here in a couple of weeks. We'll have some more stuff up. I think uh, uh, next week or the week after, I will be down at Fort Benning visiting Sniper School and checking out the guys graduating there. One of my buddies is graduating, my little protege. So I will be down at the Sniper Schoolhouse, and uh, hopefully we'll have the first sergeant on there and maybe some other snipers, uh, sniper instructors. We'll have them on the podcast as well. And... uh Also, hey, uh, one more thing, if you are a sniper from the early days of the invasion, whether it be Iraq or Afghanistan, and you'd like to come on the podcast, I'd love to have you on. Uh, Being a sniper in an invasion, I think, is a really hard, uh, it's a unique situation because there really is, the the scheme of maneuver and how invasions are done are completely different. So if you know someone or were in the invasion, whether it be Iraq or Afghanistan, you'd like to talk, please let us know. I'd love to have you on the podcast. So anyway, thank you for tuning in, folks. Hope you like the podcast. Uh, And as always, from the tall grass, one shot, one kill. Thanks. Have a good night.